will die Menschen den Sinn ihres Seins lehren. Welche ist der Übermensch, der Blitz aus der dunklen Volke Mensch? I want to teach humanity the meaning of their existence. This meaning is the Übermensch, the bolt of lightning out of the dark cloud of humanity. Ich lehre euch den Übermensch. Der Mensch ist etwas, das überwunden werden soll. Was habt ihr getan, ihn zu überwinden? I teach you all the Übermensch. Man is something which must be overcome. What have you done to overcome him? Tod sind alle Götter. Nun wollen wir, dass der Übermensch lebe. Dead are all gods. Now what we want is for the Übermensch to live. Thus spoke Zarathustra. These lines are from Nietzsche's 1885 book, Thus Spoke Zarathustra. These lines may sound to our modern ears at once cryptic and inspirational. Yet, to Nietzsche's audience, they would have been controversial, offensive, and provocative. Each of these pithy sayings is a direct affront to Christianity. For 2,000 years, Western culture had only one savior, Jesus of Nazareth. With Thus Spoke Zarathustra and the concept of the Übermensch, Nietzsche is doing no less than trying to find a replacement for Jesus. He is trying to fill, as it were, a job position which has been vacated. God is dead. Jesus has been fired. Taking the vacant job position analogy a bit further, what qualifications is Nietzsche seeking in his Übermensch? One who will be the bolt of lightning in the dark cloud of humanity. One who will overcome all of the most slavish and pathetic instincts of the human animal. One, finally, who will rescue his fellow humans, just as gods would. What defines an Übermensch? Who can we call an Übermensch? These are not trivial questions. In this week's Parsha, Vayigash, we discover an Übermensch. The ideal applicant for this job had already existed not only 2,000 years before Nietzsche, but another 2,000 years before Jesus as well. The Übermensch is Joseph. You are listening to The Shrift, Episode 11, Vayigash. Leo Tolstoy begins his famous novel, Anna Karenina, with the lines, quote, All happy families are alike. All unhappy families are unhappy in their own way. The figures of the book of Genesis are so unquestionably worshipped that it can be difficult to see their flaws. When you hear the names Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Rachel, Leah, Rebecca, Sarah, Usually words of complete praise and adulation are coming just around the corner. 
Rightfully so. I'm not disputing their greatness. I love all of them. Really, I do. But when you take a step back and evaluate their lives, you can only come to one conclusion. This is one fucked up family. Like, if somebody today saw this family and didn't know they were the matriarchs and patriarchs of the first monotheistic religion, this person would conclude. This is one fucked up family. And as Tolstoy said, this unhappy family was unhappy in its own way. The examples of dysfunction and trauma within this family are too numerous to be named, but I will give some highlights. Sarah asked her husband Abraham to sleep with her mistress because she couldn't get pregnant. Abraham dutifully obliged. Abraham held a sharpened knife over his son Isaac, ready to stab him to death until an angel intervened. Abraham and Isaac would then never speak again for the rest of their lives. Rebecca favored her son Jacob over her son Esau. She told Jacob to lie to his father to trick him into giving Jacob his legacy. But the family of Jacob is the most toxic of all. Let's think about this family for a moment. Jacob has four wives. Two of them are sisters. One of those sisters, Leah, is extremely fertile. The other sister, Rachel, can hardly get pregnant. Jacob makes it obvious to everyone that he loves Rachel far more than any of his other wives. Then we come to Jacob and his children. He makes it obvious that he loves Jacob more than any of his other sons. And the reason he loves Joseph more is because he loved his mother the most, Rachel. But this is only just the beginning. It's not just that this family is so screwed up and toxic, but it's that the rivalries, jealousies, and bad habits are being transferred from one generation to the next. Jacob, for example, grew up in a family where he was favored over his brother Esau. Yet, Jacob did not learn to overcome this toxic environment in how he raised his children. Instead, he made it even more obvious whom he loved the most and whom he favored. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree, we might say. With each passing generation, the jealousy among brothers grows. It grows because of the rather terrifying instances of parenting we witness. In the first generation, Abraham's sons, Isaac and Ishmael, didn't get along, but Ishmael did his thing on his own. In the second generation, Esau and Jacob didn't get along, and Esau vowed to kill Jacob, but the intention to kill never became a reality, and with some time apart, they learned to love each other again. By the time we get to Joseph and his brothers, the jealousy and hatred felt by the scorned brothers to the favored brother reach critical levels. Jacob has created such a toxic family environment that Joseph's 10 half-brothers decide to murder Joseph or at least sell him into slavery. When Jacob is thrown into that pit, the moment is highly symbolic. He is underground. This family, this screwed up family, has reached its lowest point. It is on the verge of collapse, on the verge of extinction. Yet, the book of Genesis ends with all of the brothers reuniting in Egypt, with Jacob as the second most powerful man in Egypt, with the healthiness and strength of the family restored. How does this happen? It happens because Joseph is an ubermensch. He is the savior of his family. When Joseph is in the pit, it is not looking good for him or for his family. But somehow, Joseph, 
through his own personal growth and strength, rises from being a prisoner in a dungeon to the Pharaoh's right-hand man. As we talked about in last week's episode, Joseph had some luck along the way, to be sure. But we, what we also witness is that Joseph wills himself to success and to triumph. In German literature, the most famous type of novel is the Bildungsroman. In English, we would translate this as a coming-of-age novel. The word Roman, of course, means novel, which I discussed in episode 7. Bildung is another interesting and highly significant word in German. In English, we have the word build, as in to build something. In personal terms, we might use the phrase to build oneself up. Bildung in German is related to build in English, but it is far more psychological. Bildung in German means education, but not just education, more like the education of oneself, the maturity process, learning the lessons of life. The word for picture or model in German is built. Bildung then has an idealistic quality to it. Through this education, you will achieve your ideal state, your picture-perfect state, your model self. A Bildungsroman, then, is a coming-of-age novel. This genre originated in Germany in the late 18th century. Goethe's book, Wilhelm Meister's Lehrjahre, from 1795, is typically considered the first Bildungsroman. This genre, however, would be adopted by novelists in countless other languages as well. Some of the most famous examples in English are Catcher in the Rye, Jane Eyre, and A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man by James Joyce. But that we still use the German term Bildungsroman for this genre shows how indebted literature is to the great German novelists. These would be specifically Goethe and Christoph Martin Wieland, who are said to have given birth to this genre. But when we consider the story of Joseph, we see how the first Bildungsroman was written thousands of years before Goethe. Joseph is a story of the metamorphosis of a naive child into a mature and savvy man of the world. When Joseph is thrown into a pit, he is young, idealistic, unaware of himself. In Vayigash, we see a Joseph who is transformed. He is now cosmopolitan. He has an Egyptian wife and he is bilingual. He is savvy and even cunning. Joseph perfectly orchestrates a trap for his brothers such that he can test whether they too have really changed. Whereas as a teenager, Joseph said whatever he thought and had no awareness of how others would perceive him, now he chooses his words carefully. But Joseph did not grow up because he necessarily wanted to. Rather, life forced him to mature. Had he remained the spoiled, head-in-the-clouds Joseph of his youth, he would have died in the dungeon. He certainly never would have become the assistant to the pharaoh. Joseph underwent a series of challenges which hardened him and prepared him for adulthood. He dealt with poverty and betrayal. He had to fend off his master's wife who tried to seduce him. Finally, he had to figure out a way to ingratiate himself with the pharaoh. Joseph is indeed not only a Bildungsroman, it is also the penultimate rags-to-riches story, proof of the capitalistic ideal that through one's hard work and cleverness, one can pull oneself up from his bootstraps into wealth and success. 
But it isn't just Joseph who changes. It is also his half-brother Judah who matures. As a young man, it was Judah who said to his brothers, why should we just murder Joseph when instead we can sell him into slavery and get money for him? Yet in Vayigash, it is Judah's final gestures of contrition and guilt which convince Joseph that his brothers have truly learned and changed. When Judah sees that his youngest brother Benjamin is going to be taken prisoner, Judah says to Joseph, take me as prisoner instead. My father already lost one son from his wife, Rachel. If he loses a second, he will not survive this. A central teaching of meditation and of Buddhist philosophy is that everything in life is always changing. The universe is in a constant state of motion and flux. There is a teaching that, when you meditate, each breath you take is unique. No breath is exactly the same. This is not only said to sound inspirational, but is also biologically true. When you meditate, you become a different person each minute of that meditation. Your thoughts will change, your emotions will change, your breath will change, your muscles will change. But meditation is only a symbol for living itself. The thoughts you have, no matter how important or dramatic they seem, will not last forever. The emotions you have, no matter how powerful today, will eventually disappear. Along these lines, the reason why the Bildungsroman is so popular and so moving to readers is that it reflects the human experience. We see characters change and grow, just as we ourselves know that we have changed and have grown and have matured. But here's the thing. While change is guaranteed, there is no way of knowing how we will change. While Joseph and Judah change for the better and improve themselves, sometimes the opposite occurs. People become worse. They become more childish, more immature, more lazy, more cynical. 30 minutes of meditation will change you for the better. 30 minutes on Instagram will change you for the worse. It's largely up to us how we want to direct the flow of our lives. Just because Jane Eyre and Holden Caulfield and Joseph become more sophisticated as they aged doesn't mean that we necessarily will. Here's where we come back to the idea of the Übermensch. The Übermensch is a combination of two words in German. The first word is Über, which can translate as over or above or even beyond. A Mensch in German is not just some cute bar mitzvah boy who one time helped a blind old lady across the street. Rather, Mensch simply means human. In combining the words Über and Mensch, Nietzsche is making a bold statement about who the next savior of humanity will be. It will not be a god as it was in Christianity, but rather it will be just some regular person. But this person will be more than himself. He will go beyond himself and his human limitations. Nietzsche's conception of the Übermensch was a direct affront to Christianity. With the Übermensch, Nietzsche was taking out a glove and slapping Christianity in the face why was this such an attack on Christianity? The first and most obvious reason is that Nietzsche was declaring that the previous savior was no longer sufficient for these times. God was dead and we had killed him. Second, Nietzsche's use of the word mensch is provocative. Christianity had always taught that the mensch, the human, is a sinner and a falling being that could only be rescued and saved through a heavenly being. 
Nietzsche is saying here, no. There is nothing about the human which, when cultivated, cannot be just as theologically powerful as a god. And third, Nietzsche was attacking the idea that salvation could not come in this world, that it could only come in a future world. By saying that the Savior would be a mensch, Nietzsche was showing that it is up to us to find salvation. We cannot outsource this responsibility to a god. Does this type of thinking sound familiar? It should. In a way, the entire project of Judaism is not to figure out a way to get to heaven, but rather to show how we can become godlike, not gods, godlike, in this world. When God created Adam and Eve, it is said that he created them in his image, that is, with the potential to be godlike. Yet, when faced with the opportunity to be ubermenschen, or to be more like animals, Adam and Eve symbolically opted to, we might say, change for the worse, to fall. The Torah, as I mentioned in episode two, is written so as to continually lift us up from our baser instincts. The Torah is a kind of continual call for us to be ubermenschen and not just mention. All of this culminates in the story of Joseph. He is thrown into a pit. He is literally underground. He has fallen. And from there, he falls a second time, being put into a dungeon. Yet, the story of Joseph concludes with him as the second highest man in Egypt. He is where one sees the uber part of ubermensch at work. Again and again, Joseph pulls himself up, as it were. He wills himself to success. Almost magically, he goes beyond what one would think him capable of. In episode 9 on the overcoming of nihilism, I talked about how it takes an almost Herculean effort to overcome the forces of meaninglessness to enter into supreme meaning. This Nietzsche would say is the task of the Übermensch. Yet, it is one thing to pull oneself out from the dungeon. Joseph did so in such a way that his power and abundance not only flowed onto him, but onto others as well. In episode 4, I talked about how true compassion comes when one feels such an abundance of goodness that this naturally spills over onto those around him. In episode 8, I made a similar point about revenge. I said that true forgiveness is only possible when one has such an excess of positive feeling that one is almost eager to forgive his enemies. Not only does Joseph reinvent himself, he also forgives his brothers who had once tried to murder him. And on top of that, he saves them from starvation. At the end of Vayigash, he invites his entire family down to Egypt, now consisting of 70 people, where he gives them the best land in the entire country. He is their savior. There is another line in Thus Spoke Zarathustra we need to mention. Nietzsche writes, quote, the Übermensch should be the meaning of the earth. Here, once more, Nietzsche is doing everything he can to ground the new savior in the earth, in the soil, in nature. This is yet another affront to Christianity. Jesus of Nazareth, as great as he may have been, has, in a way, little to teach us. He is a God and we are humans. A common inspirational phrase for people is, what would Jesus do? But, in fact, we can't do what Jesus did to transcend our lives. Jesus could perform miracles. 
Jesus could forgive everyone without difficulty. Jesus could give infinite love to everyone without thinking twice about it. We can't do any of these things. He didn't even really have parents. He had no children and no love interests. In short, we cannot really relate to him. He is a God and we are mere humans. Nietzsche, in repeatedly emphasizing the earthliness and creatureliness of the Ubermensch, wants to say, give us a savior we can relate to, to whom we can learn something from. Unlike Jesus, Joseph is a man of our world with warts and all. He is not perfect. He has flaws. His strengths are not magical powers and boundless love and boundless forgiveness, but rather patience, endurance, craftiness, optimism. Joseph's idea of salvation is not bliss in heaven, but rather a sense of wellness and prosperity in this world. He is, like Nietzsche's Ubermensch, intimately connected with nature and the earth. His main task as an Egyptian politician was literally handing out grain and flour to the masses. His hands were always, at least symbolically, filled with soil. Maybe it's time we start asking ourselves, what would Joseph do? But we are not finished with Vayigash. Joseph brings his aged father Jacob down to Egypt after not having seen him in decades. On the way down, to whom does Jacob speak? God. God. Remember God? We haven't heard from him in a while. Throughout the Joseph story, God never makes an appearance. He never speaks to Joseph. Sure, Joseph says that dreams come from God, but we covered that last week, where I said that God and randomness can be seen as interchangeable concepts. Why is God so absent from Joseph's Bildungsroman, from his rags to riches story? It is almost as if the Torah wishes to say, look at what you are capable of accomplishing without God. Look at what you can accomplish on your own. Or as Nietzsche would say, look at what you must accomplish on your own. Yet, here you might think, wait a minute, doesn't Joseph give God credit in the end for all that he has achieved? Yes, he does. When Joseph finally reveals to his brothers his true identity, he adds some words of consolation. He says, God intended all of this to happen. So don't feel bad for, you know, trying to murder me and all. On one level, Joseph is being quite the gentleman here. One can only imagine the humiliation of trying to murder your brother out of jealousy, then having to beg him for food 20 years later after he has become the second wealthiest man in Egypt. So Joseph is being grace, gracious and thoughtful. But there is more going on here. In three verses in a row, Joseph tells his brothers that God should get the credit for all of this, that he, Joseph, had nothing to do with it. Basically, Joseph says, it was not me, it was God. It wasn't me, it was God. And then a third time, it was not me, it was God. Don't give me any credit. Sometimes silence can speak volumes. And sometimes re repeating a phrase can make it seem weaker, even ironic. And here, I believe, the Torah is being a bit ironic, a bit tongue-in-cheek. It was really all because of God? Really? What would happen if you wore a new shirt to a party and someone complimented you on it? Then they complimented you again, and a third time. 
Probably, you would begin to wonder if this person really liked your scarf, or if maybe he was mocking you. Or imagine this example. Tom Hanks wins an Oscar for Best Picture. He goes on stage to give his speech, and he says, I couldn't have done any of this without my wife. Then he says it again, and then a third time. At this point, would you think Tom Hanks really wants to give his wife all of the credit? Or maybe he has some kind of grudge against his wife. Maybe he thought she got in the way somehow. When Joseph gives the credit to God, it is almost tacked onto the story, a kind of awkward and inelegant addendum to all that Joseph has himself willed. It is almost as if the Torah wishes to say, look at how much you can accomplish without God's assistance. Look at what you, as a mere human, yet somehow more than human, are capable of. A lot of times it seems like you ain't gonna make it where you wanna be in life. But yo, yo, if you got a plan, believe me, you gonna get there. You gonna get everything you ever wanted, baby. That's my word. Trust. My niggas come home from long bids. They check for me before they see their own kids. I open up accounts for them. We bounce touring. Major cities, arenas, headlines with big time singers. Cop Ferraris with navigational screens. Got us through your hood at any locality. Then back to Queens. Piped out seats. Oakwood, MB Court speakers. Bumping out old shit that make me think of old Easters. 86 and up Latiga short sleeves. Lees, flip the cuffs up. Getting fucked up from OE. Fresh fest. Niggas got hurt. Hundred niggas rust the door with Queens. Spritz, tournament shirts Back then nobody wore vests Pull out razors You had to put your hand skills to the test Get your puma sook Come on barefoot Wildin' Look at the chain I snatched With the medallion worth a thousand Cops rushed the garden Made it home smiling. Half of the crew Probably on the island Project call Play puffball The hoop was made out of a hanger Playing corners Stick the elevator Never thought Project life Would promise nothing But the dotrife For stepping on the next man's nights My motto Look for tomorrow Today is yesterday Look at the hood now I'm mad that it turned out out that way, gas spray, these shorties is killers, the older G's called us, well, what's wild now is that they smaller, and they look at me, like I'm on the outside looking in, like who's you when I cruise through, I call shorty, took them in, watch your friends get in, be clever, realize today's the first day that begins forever, yo, everything will eventually come to an end, so try to save it a moment, this time flies, don't it, the beauty of life, you gotta make it last for the better, cause nothing lasts forever, you know, Yo, now everything eventually comes to an end So try to save it a moment Cause time flies, don't it? The beauty of life You gotta make it last for the better Cause nothing lasts forever Yo, nice cars Living like a star club hopping Popping bottles at the bar Love shopping Gucci iceberg Copping two, three nice furs One for your wife One for your freak Silver spurs Rolls Royce Too good to be true House is worth 2.2 Pool parties Beautiful view You made it in life Forbes magazine style Baggy jean style Past the green Meanwhile, hoes with meanwhile asses, pretty mommies, illest bodies, past glasses. Lewis Rotoro with peach snaps, you just relaxing. Thinking, damn, wish my niggas could afford this. On the sand at your Malibu house, holding the cordless, talking to lawyers, accountants, investments. Money doubles, triples protected. Hard work, you manifested. Worries of failure when you bury this, you're familiar. Gonna keep your name prospering to the maximum. You should live, there's only one life. That's the physical. Rich or poor in jail, why the fuck should you be miserable? Things happen for reasons, the clock keeps ticking. Love could have your heartbeat skipping Thugs turn to religion The bitch you love can start to hate you The shit you used to do escape you Things that made you laugh represent the past Reminisce the block Gamble G's on the floor Niggas used to be the man You don't see them no more Your favorite restaurant
restaurants and favorite stores They tore them down, turned them into shopping malls The hood is like a ghost town Haunted by souls who thought the time stood still Just live your life to the fullest, never look back, it's real Everything must eventually come to an end So try to savor your moments, cause time flies, don't it? The beauty of life, you gotta make it last for the better Cause nothing lasts forever, you know? I said everything eventually comes to an end So try to savor your moments, cause time flies, don't it? The beauty of life, you gotta make it last for the better Cause nothing lasts forever, you know, you know Nothing lasts forever, you know Let it go, let it go